This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. A common question we get from patients is, what can you give me to help me sleep? Explaining how our sleep changes with age, becoming less efficient, more fragmented, with multiple reasons for nighttime awakenings, is often met with understanding from the patient, but is always followed by the question, so what are you going to give me to help me sleep? How does sleep change with aging? Why do we often have difficulty falling and staying asleep? And does the ideal pharmacologic agent exist that can be taken nightly, help us fall asleep, remain asleep throughout the night, and allow us to wake up feeling refreshed in the morning? In today's podcast, we'll discuss these questions with our guest, Dr. Banu Kola, a psychiatrist from the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Welcome, Banu, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Daryl. Well, let's start by asking, I'm going to ask you to describe normal sleep physiology and how this might change as we age. Sure. All of us require a certain amount of sleep. And like with everything else in life, there is a bell-shaped curve. So most of us fall right in the middle, requiring between seven to nine hours of sleep. There are outliers. So there are people who require much less. So four or five hours, they do just fine getting four or five hours. So if they sleep those required number of hours, they function well, they're quite productive, they have no symptoms. We call these people short sleepers. At the other end, there are people who require 10, 11 hours each night. If they don't get those 10 to 11 hours, then what they experience is daytime sleepiness, irritability, and other consequences of sleep deprivation. So we call these people long sleepers. Most of us in our early 20s sort of settle into a pattern in terms of the number of hours we need. The way we assess this clinically is if somebody comes in, tells us on vacations, weekends, when there is really nothing going on, I go to bed at a certain time, I don't have any alarm set, so I wake up when my body wakes me up. That's usually the amount that they need. And most of us through the work week require a little less. So at that time, we are slightly sleep deprived. But going through vacations, weekends, that's usually when we get our ideas as to how much sleep each person needs. In terms of what happens with age, usually little changes till maybe the 50s or 60s, and there is a slight sex difference, and we'll get to that in a bit. But what happens is as people get older, the amount of sleep that they need goes down, but it is ever so slight in terms of the number of minutes that it goes down by. And there is also a slight change in the kind of sleep that they get. So there are various stages of sleep. So that changes a little bit. And in women, there is a little more change, especially around perimenopause, and that settles after five to six years. Well, I do get a lot of questions about insomnia. And what should I be asking the patient in order to further evaluate their insomnia? I, I know they're asking for a pill, but that's not in my you know, initial treatment plan. So how should we go about evaluating the patient who says, I'm really having trouble sleeping? Right. 
So trouble sleeping could mean many things. And what you're trying to do is look for low-hanging fruit that you could fix easily. And quite often there are low-hanging fruit. So are people giving themselves an adequate opportunity to sleep? Is the bedroom environment conducive to sleep? So you're trying to rule out things that are either environmental or personal that are interfering with sleep. Once you have done that, when it comes down to chronic insomnia disorder, which is the technical diagnosis that we use, there it's a question of difficulty getting to sleep, staying asleep, or waking up earlier than usual. And if this happens at least three times a week for three months, that's when we make the diagnosis. But the caveat here is that you're giving yourself that adequate opportunity for sleep. And once you've met that threshold and it's gone on for at least three months, that's when we make the diagnosis. So let's say we've eliminated the likelihood of any specific sleep disorder and the patient is either having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep throughout the night. What are the lifestyle changes they could make that might improve those problems? So the first and most important thing that we want to look for is what is the total amount of sleep that they're getting in a 24-hour period? A lot of people nap during the daytime. So if you take long naps, your body really doesn't care where it's getting the sleep at what time. As long as it gets a sufficient amount, it's okay. So if you're taking long naps, that's going to start borrowing from nighttime sleep. So that's one thing you're trying to assess for. And then trying to make sure people have a certain set routine. Our brains sort of need some cues to understand this is the time for me to start shutting down. So they start preparing for getting you to sleep. Then you fall off to sleep and they need to know that this is the time for me to wake up too. So having relatively consistent times there. So what you're trying to do is look at lifestyle measures and sleep habits, making sure people have adequate routines, a relatively fixed time to go to bed and to wake up and try and stick to these even on weekends and holidays without too much uh, variation. Mm -hmm. For those who are having trouble staying asleep, I always like to ask if there's a specific reason for this, such as uh, common things I get, musculoskeletal pain. Maybe they've got arthritis of a hip or knee and they wake up from pain when they move, or maybe they've got frequent episodes of nocturia. I'd look for depression, anxiety, and sometimes that gives me some clues in terms of what's going on with their sleep. What they really want, as I mentioned earlier, is a pill. Does the ideal pharmacologic agent exist? Something that's safe, something that they can take every night, they can fall asleep quickly, they stay asleep, and they don't have drowsiness in the next morning. Does that exist? <laughs> so that is the holy grail. And right. uh, unfortunately, no. Like with all medications, sleeping medications also have their benefits, but at the same time risks. And always we're balancing out the benefits, which are putting people to sleep, making them feel rested, therefore functioning better during the daytime with some of the downsides and almost all medications. Well, I'd say all medications have some downsides that we have to balance. Well, let's start with some of the common things that are available and tell me the advantages and maybe the disadvantages of these. I'm going to start with probably the safest and maybe the least effective, and we'll kind of work our way up the uh, spectrum to 
most effective, but maybe a little bit more risk to them. Let's start with melatonin. How does that work and does it work? Melatonin is not in theory a prescription medication. It is regarded by the FDA as a supplement. So what that means is anybody can manufacture it. It is a hormone that our pineal gland secretes and it secretes very low quantities of this in the late evening to sort of start signaling to the brain that it's time to shut down and it's biological night. So we tend to use, at least in a sleep medicine practice, low doses of melatonin when there are these body clock disturbances to reset the body clock. There we're usually using 0.5 to one milligram immediate release. At higher doses, and by higher doses, I mean between three, five to 10 milligrams, it can work as a weak hypnotic. So the evidence has gone back and forth in terms of is it effective or not? And we think maybe it is, and that it helps a little bit with getting people to sleep and maybe increases the total amount of sleep ever so slightly. But the main advantage to melatonin is that there are very few to no side effects. At least up to 10 milligrams, it's considered to be quite safe. I tend to use it quite often in my practice. It sort of helps delay reaching for a prescription. It also gives you some time to get to know your patient. And also, if you are working on behavioral strategies, it sort of helps the patient work on those while you're prescribing something that is low risk. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I often start with this as well, because patients want something and whether it's mostly a placebo effect they're getting, or if it actually helps, I don't really know. But uh, does melatonin suppress our own body's production of melatonin? We don't think it does. So long-term studies, especially in kids, have really not shown any long-term adverse effects to melatonin. So we don't think that there is any change to our natural secretion of melatonin when we start using extraneous sources. Okay. And the other thing I've heard about melatonin is patients take it way too late. And to be effective, it should be taken maybe several hours before they intend to go to sleep. Is that true? Not accurate for insomnia. So for body clock disturbances, like we just talked, there is a theory that if you time it right, it works better. So that's where this whole idea that you need to take it a few hours before bedtime comes from. Mm -hmm. But if you're using it as a sleeping pill, as a hypnotic, taking it about 30 minutes before your bedtime, which is what we usually recommend for most sleeping pills, that works well. Okay. Let's go up the ladder a little bit. Another medication that is available easily to the patient without a prescription are the -the over-the-counter sedating antihistamines. What are the advantages and disadvantages of those? So the common ones we use are doxylamine and diphenhydramine or Benadryl. Mm -hmm. Most of the -the over-the-counter preparations, so the NyQuil, Z-Quils, they contain diphenhydramine. Doxylamine actually has a very specific use as a hypnotic, especially in pregnancy. So that's the one drug that's been found to be safe. Most of that literature comes from morning sickness, but we know that it's safe. It's not going to do any harm. So in pregnant patients who are experiencing significant insomnia that's not responding to behavioral treatments, doxylamine clearly has a role. A lot of people gravitate to the diphenhydramine preparations just because it's easily available. So that's what they end up experimenting with. 
The problem with diphenhydramine is it's long acting. So it's usually in your system for about 10, 12 hours. The half-life is pretty long. So that translates to a certain amount of morning grogginess. So people wake up for the first two to four hours, they're still quite hungover from it. It can cause urinary retention and confusion, especially in the elderly. So there we're really careful about medium to long-term use of diphenhydramine. It's interesting that this class of medications is actually being now promoted and marketed for its adverse effects. When it was an antihistamine for allergy symptoms, uh, the sedation that it produced was a bad thing, and now it's being marketed for that sedation. And and you're right, I, I tend to um, feel more comfortable prescribing this to elderly females than males because of the potential obstructive symptoms from prostatism in elderly males, and I do worry about urinary retention in them. All right, well, let's go now to some of the prescription medications, and let's start with the antidepressants, commonly used ones, trazodone, maybe a little bit of tricyclic antidepressants, probably not too much of that anymore, or tazepine. How about those? So with trazodone, Trazodone has a long history of being used as a hypnotic medication, especially in psychiatric practices. I still use it quite often with my psychiatry patients and also in my addiction practice. I think the dosage most people need between 50 to 150 milligrams. It's usually an antidepressant only at 150 and above. So usually you're not going beyond that. The sedative effects tend to plateau at 150. It also has a half-life of roughly eight, nine hours, so it can have some morning grogginess. The main side effects here are orthostatic hypotension, so that can be a problem. Priapism is a rare but potentially serious side effect, and it can happen in one in five to one in 10,000 men, so that's something you want to warn your patients about. But outside of that, I think clinically we have decades of experience. It's a very safe drug outside of those side effects, and it still has its role. Mirtazapine, it is an antidepressant, and the main side effects from mirtazapine are sedation and weight gain. So the weight gain piece is something to consider when you're trying to use it in terms of its sleep effects. I tend to use it mostly if I need an antidepressant for a patient, especially somebody who has some degree of cachexia, appetite loss. So you want to promote appetite and at the same time hit sleep. By itself, just for sleep, I don't think that the side effects are worth it. There are many other options. Mm-hmm. With the tricyclic, so the amitriptyline, nortriptyline, imipramine, those drugs, usually again, you're looking at dual purpose. So if people have headaches or other reasons, where there is also insomnia, you're trying to use them and they come with their own set of long-term side effects. The one exception to this is a newer preparation of doxepin. So doxepin is a tricyclic, it's a pretty old tricyclic, and it's usually used as an antidepressant at doses of 100 and over. It does have a specific FDA indication as a hypnotic, and that's available as the brand name Silinor at three and six milligrams, so very low doses. At those doses, it doesn't tend to act as a tricyclic, it's mostly antihistaminergic in terms of its effects. The generic version is available at 10 milligrams, which I tend to use quite often. And that's a safe and reasonably effective hypnotic medication. When these medications uh, are taken chronically, do they have a tolerance? So does the sedating 
capacity these medications continue or does that eventually wear off so they're no longer as sedating after several weeks as they were? In most cases, no. So they continue to remain sedating. There are, of course, uh, exceptions and outliers, but in most cases, they continue to remain effective. Okay. Next group of medicines, let's talk about the short and intermediate acting benzodiazepines, uh, lorazepam, temazepam, triazolam. What are those advantages and disadvantages? So with benzodiazepines, they have been around a long time. They were one of the safer medications when the barbiturates were around in terms of hypnotic medications that were available to us. There were about five benzodiazepines that had a specific FDA indication to be used for insomnia, but we've more or less fallen to just using triazolam and timazepam. Triazolam is very quick acting, so when people have difficulties getting to sleep, that's when it tends to get used. Temazepam is longer acting, so that's used when there are difficulties both getting to and staying asleep. With benzodiazepines, the concern is, and this is the same with some of the other hypnotics, they can cause anterograde amnesia. So you take the medication and you forget what you have done. They can cause complex behaviors. With benzodiazepines, more so than some of the other medications, there's also the possibility of tolerance over time. It's a little more likely than some of the other drugs, but again, it's not a common effect. Most patients, once a dose gets them better, it keeps them better. There are a lot of studies now which have shown some association between benzodiazepine use and adverse effects. So things like falls, hip fractures, cognitive impairment. These studies are limited in that we can't really prove causality. So it could be the insomnia or the anxiety that is actually the association with these adverse outcomes and the benzodiazepines are confounders. And I don't think we have resolved that question. Just from a clinical standpoint, we have better options. So benzodiazepines usually are third or fourth line, uh, not something that we commonly prescribe these days. Mm -hmm. And would you agree that there's really no role for the longer acting benzodiazepines, such things as diazepam, because of the significantly enhanced half-life because of the active metabolites and so forth? For sleep, yes. I don't think that the clonazepam, diazepam medications are good options for just sleep. Again, if you have a patient who has a severe anxiety disorder or a panic disorder where you're trying to treat that, so with an SSRI and augment with a benzodiazepine like this, and they're also having insomnia, maybe it can have a dual indication there, but just by themselves, just for sleep, no. Okay. And then finally, let's talk about the non-benzodiazepines, hypnotics, zolpidem, uh, zolepion, and so forth. Sure. So there are these classes of medications, this class of medication called the NBBRA, that's the technical term. So they're non-benzodiazepine, benzodiazepine receptor agonists. So they act on certain parts of the benzodiazepine receptor. These are pure hypnotics. So in therapeutic doses, all they do is help with sleep. So they don't have the benzodiazepine anxiolytic effect or muscle relaxant effect. The three common ones are Zolpidem or Ambien, and there are various formulations of Ambien. There is the control release, which is slightly longer acting. And then there is a spray called Zolpimist, which has a specific indication for middle of the night awakenings. Then there is Zaleplon or Sonata, which is 
extremely short acting and used for either difficulties getting to sleep or again for middle of the night awakenings, specifically when patients have say an additional two, three hours to sleep, they wake up in the middle of the night, need something just to take to get them back to sleep, but it works itself out of their system in two, three hours. Azopiclone is Lunesta, it's longer acting, and that's roughly six to eight hours. So that's used for patients who have difficulty both getting to and staying asleep. So since our patient's idiopathic insomnia is a chronic issue, I'm excluding patients who may be struggling through a, you know, a temporary stressful episode, a loss of a spouse or something like that. How should we be prescribing medications for a chronic problem? Uh, do we want to give these nightly, indefinitely? In general, when patients come in with insomnia, what we are trying to do is one, look at are there any clear behavioral targets that we can influence with sleep hygiene recommendations or cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia. In certain patients, there is a clear role for hypnotic medication, and we tend to use that there. Our current understanding of chronic insomnia is that once it develops, it tends to sort of last for at least three, five, seven years. The best done longitudinal studies show that even at, say, five years, about 50% still meet criteria for chronic insomnia disorder. So it's a chronic condition. Like with any other chronic condition, you want to treat it long-term, and there are certain medications that actually have long-term indications. So these are Ambient CR, Lunesta, Esopiclone, and Remelteon. So all of these have been studied up to 12 months, found to be effective for that length of time and not cause any side effects. So when I start prescribing, I always want to start building what I would call an off-ramp. So tell them that we're going to do this for three months, reassess, see where things are. If life is settled, they feel sleep is settled, that's a time to talk about maybe considering slowly tapering and discontinuing medication and seeing if they still need it. If they do, based on the consequences of insomnia, which causes daytime impairment, mood problems, you want to keep going with the medication because the benefits there outweigh the risks. And if they feel like their sleep has settled, at that point, you're home and dry. So you're getting them off the medication. Okay. Are you aware of any new, potentially helpful medications on the horizon? So there is a newer class of hypnotic medications. They're called DORAs or dual orexin receptor antagonists. So these include Suvorexant, Lemborexant, and Daridorexant. Those are the three drugs that have an FDA approval for insomnia. They work through a completely different mechanism. They are orexin antagonists. Orexin is a wakefulness promoting agent in the brain and they block that agent so they can produce sleep. I don't think that they're any different in terms of their efficacy. I think they work roughly the same. They have slightly different side effect profile as compared to the other drugs. So they have their role, and those are newer drugs. There are more of these particular compounds that are currently being evaluated that might hit the market So, Okay. Well, Banu, I have found the perfect solution to insomnia in myself. On the rare nights that I have trouble sleeping, I turn on one of my podcasts and listen to myself, and I put myself to sleep in 10 minutes. Well, it's I'll start totally recommending safe. that to yep. my patients too. Yep, yep. And our two listeners, I think, have discovered <laughs> that as well. Well, we've been discussing medications for insomnia with Dr. Banu Kola from the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology at the Mayo Clinic. 
Banu, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. It was a great discussion. Thank you. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.